Bibles with you this morning, you can open them with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, today we'll be looking at verses 1 through 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Now if you do not have your Bible, uh, you can grab one of the pew Bibles there and turn to page 902 in the pew Bible. 902 in the pew Bible. And uh, if you do not have your own Bible, uh, then you are welcome to take that pew Bible with you as our gift to you. So 1 Corinthians chapter 13, page 902 in the pew Bible. Today we're looking at love. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is uh, probably one of the most well-known texts, one of the most well-known chapters of the Bible. It, it is known as the love chapter. And so you've probably heard uh, 1 Corinthians 13 preached many times. Uh, a lot of times it's preached in wedding ceremonies. And so this is kind of, it's kind of a go-to text for many pastors and, and weddings. But, uh, you know, really when you, when you think about 1 Corinthians 13 and a wedding, it, it's kind of taken out of its original biblical context. Now, it fits well. No problem with that. Of course, it fits in a, a wedding service when you're talking about love between a man and a woman. Uh, but it, it's really when you begin to put it in its original biblical historical context, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13 really comes alive and it really edifies the church as a body. So when we look at 1 Corinthians 13, of course, we see it in the context of this discussion on spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts and how love then relates to the spiritual gifts. Now we have to keep in mind that as Paul is writing to this church in Corinth, Corinth has a number of problems. They have a number of problems that Paul is addressing. He's been addressing a number of those already. There's this lack of love really, in the Corinthian church. Now, there's this, uh, the splits in the church over, I'm following this teacher, that teacher, this other teacher. There's, there's sin in the church. But there's also this conflict over the spiritual gifts. The Corinthians, they think, they have this idea in their mind that a person is super spiritual if that person has some of the more visible gifts. Namely, in this case, the gift of speaking in tongues. I mean, that's a pretty visible gift. If you blurt out a, a language that you've never studied, never spoken before, uh, that gets people's attention. And, and so the Corinthians, and we'll see this more when we get to chapter 14, but the Corinthians have this idea where they're exalting this gift above every other gift, saying, like, if you have this gift, then that's a sign that you are uber-spiritual, right? You're a super-Christian if you have the gift of speaking in tongues. And Paul here is backing up a little bit. He wants them to think about that a little bit more. In fact, what Paul tells us here in 1 Corinthians 13 is that no, in fact, the displaying of spiritual gifts is not the key to living a spiritual or a spirit-filled life. The more visible your gift is, is not the key to being a spiritual person. It's not key to living in the power of the Holy Spirit. The key to living life in the Spirit, because we are commanded to live 
by the Spirit, in the Spirit, not in the flesh, right? The key to living life in the Spirit is the preeminent fruit of the Spirit, love. The key to the spiritual life, the key to the spiritual life is the preeminent fruit of the Spirit, love. Love is the key. So 1 Corinthians chapter 13 teaches us then three things that we need to learn about love. First, it teaches us the preeminence of love. Then it tells us the properties of love. And then third, it shows us the uh, permanence of love. Now today, we're just going to focus in on the preeminence of love. The preeminence of love. And we'll look at those other two in the weeks coming. So today, we want to focus in on verses 1 through 3 to focus in on the preeminence of love. And, and here's what we're going to learn today. Love is the preeminent characteristic of the spirit-filled life love is the preeminent the supreme characteristic of the spirit-filled life you want to know if you're living life in the spirit how's your love how is love how is love fitting into your walk with christ that my friend is key so as we consider the preeminence of love, then the first thing we, we're going to look at, we're going to consider is uh, defining love. What does it mean to love? What is Paul talking about when he says love? Second, Paul gives us three uh, hyperbolic examples, three hyperbolic examples that reveal the preeminence of love in the Christian life. So we're going to define it, and then we're going to see these hyperbolic, these exaggerated examples that Paul gives us that shows us the preeminence of love in the Christian life. And so today I just hope that we realize the importance of, of love in our Christian walk. We need to understand the preeminence of love in our Christian walk. So if you found your place there, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 through 3, please stand with me in reverence to the reading of God's holy word. Now I'm going to back up just a hair bit because... Uh, the last part of verse, uh, chapter 12, verse 31, goes with chapter 13. So we'll start with 1231. But earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way, a more preeminent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Amen. May the Lord add blessings to the reading of his holy, inspired, and inerrant word. And may he write its eternal truth on all our hearts. And you may be seated. So we are talking about the love chapter. It's mentioned a lot, uh, several times in, in this, this chapter. Uh, love is just all over the place. But we need to, to define love. Love. We, we must define love because 
really, especially when we think about love in our own context, uh, our culture has so absolutely perverted the idea of love that uh, our culture has no idea what love means. Right? We can say, well, I love my wife, I love my kids, I love my truck, I love my dog, I love football, I love bass fishing, I love hunting, I like gun. You know, we, we can love all kinds of things, but certainly we don't, I don't love my wife the same way I love my truck and my dog. Right? There's, there's a different kind of love there. Uh, I wouldn't even characterize, uh, even though I say it, because that's what we say, I, I wouldn't even say that I love my truck and my dog. I can get rid of those things and still be happy with life. But I, gotta, I need my wife, right? I, I love her. And, and so there's a, a different, we have, uh, even though we say we love all of these different things, we have a different idea about what love means. And, and what we typically talk about love is, is completely different than what Paul is talking about love, especially in, in this text. So we need to understand the kind of, of love. Now even when we think about love in our own cultural context, we, we understand that there, is dif there are different kinds of love. There's a, a kind of a familial, brotherly kind of love that we might have for other people. Uh, and, and this kind of brotherly love is for uh, over mutual camaraderie, camaraderie over uh, shared interest. There's that romantic kind of love that we feel, that tingly sensation when we're with that loved one, right? And, and then there's that physical kind of love. We even call it making love, right? And, and so we have these different ideas about love, but, but when we come to, to Scripture, what does Scripture mean by love? And, and really, when you go, if you want to really understand biblical love, you need to understand what love was and how love uh, was thought about in, in the Greek language, in, in the Greek society, because that's where the New Testament's written. That's where Paul is, is speaking. And so when you look at the, the New Testament language, when you look at the Greek language, there are four kinds of love. We, we have that one word. We just say love. But they had four words, four words for uh, four different kinds of, of love, right? It, this is not an emotional thing. It's not always about emotions, but uh, let's just understand these four Greek words for love. Now, the first one that I, I want to point out here is not in Scripture. This is the only one that is absolutely not used in Scripture. That is the, the Greek word eros. Eros. Now, this is a kind of romantic kind of love. This is where we get our English term erotic. Uh, so it's that kind of romantic love, sexual kind of love, and, and it's found nowhere in Scripture. It's the only one that's not found in Scripture. So there's eros. And then there's this other term, storge. Now, this one's not used in its, its this, you know, and this phrasing is not used in the New Testament, but the the negative of it, ah, storge, uh, storge is used in the New Testament. But storge is a familial love. It's a familial love. It, it comes from being in close contact with someone. Most often it has to do with a, a, a family, right? Being that kind of love in a family, being close in family. It, it's a parent's love for her child or a son's love for his, his parents. It's a familial kind of love. And, and when we see it used in the, the New Testament, as I say, we see the negative 
term for it, ah, storge, uh, which is in reference to, it's a condemnation on people for not loving their relatives as they, they should love them. And, and so there's storge, this familial kind of love. And then there's the third phrase for love, uh, philia, philia. Uh, and this is used several times in the New Testament. But philia, of course, is brotherly love. It's a brotherly love. It's where you, you get the name Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, philia. So it's a, a brotherly love. It's a mutual camaraderie based on those mutual interests. So Jesus said to pe Peter, I agape you. And Peter said, well, I fillet you, right? Philia you. Uh, it, it's that kind of brotherly love on, based on mutual camaraderie. But then there is this fourth kind of love. And you've all heard this phrase before, but this is, all, this is always the kind of love that is referenced when, when talking about God's love, and that is agape, agape. And y'all know that term, y'all have heard it before. What is agape? Agape is perfect love. It is divine love. Anytime Scripture talks about God's love, the New Testament talks about God's love for someone, it's agape, love. And so what does it mean? And that's really what Paul is talking about here. All of these phrases for love in chapter 13 is the term agape. Agape, this perfect divine kind of love. And so the most essential thing, the most preeminent thing in a Christian's walk in the spirit-filled life is agape, this perfect kind of love. So what does this perfect kind of love look like? Well, how do we define this perfect love? Well, we see this in uh, one of the best places we see this is in John 3, 16. We all know that verse very well. But we see the definition of this word arising out of this text of Scripture. For it tells us how God's love is displayed for his people. For God so loved, God agape, right? God so loved the world. And this is how he loved the world, that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. God so loved the world. He agaped the world, right? And this is how he gave. He gave his only son. So we see the characteristic of agape love in this text. Perfect love, and here's the definition, perfect love is a selfless, sacrificial act for the benefit of others. Perfect love, agape love, is a selfless, sacrificial act for the benefit of others. It's selfless. It's selfless. It, 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 it has no regard for self, but it puts others Ahead of your own interest, Philippians 2 says, have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he, he, he humbled himself, 
taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of a man. And he became obedient to God the Father, obedient even to the point of death. We're to, uh, to, to think of others. We're put other people's interests ahead of our own, just like Jesus put our interests ahead of his own interests. That's that kind of selfless, sacrificial. It's making a sacrifice for someone else. And that's agape love. Agape love is, is not a tingly feeling, right? That kind of love is it's not a tingly feeling. I just get tingles when I'm around her, right? I, I just love her because I get this feeling. And that's how our world defines love. It's this feeling I get around. It's this emotional feeling, this tingly feeling up my spine. But then what happens when, that, when you get kind of used to her and, and that tingly feeling kind of disappears? Then, then what happens to the relationship? Well, what do we see in the world? That relationship dissolves because the tingly feeling is gone. I need to go find somebody else who gives me that tingle. But that's not the kind of love that God calls us to. It's not an emotional kind of love. It's a committed kind of love that is selfless. It, it surrenders around the other person. It's giving yourself to the other person, making sacrifices for the other person so that they get the benefit. And that's exactly what Christ did for us. He could have stayed on his throne. He deserved glory. He received glory. He is the eternal God of glory. But he surrendered his glory. He set that glory aside and he came and he humbled himself. He became like one of us, sacrificially, selflessly dying on the cross for our benefit so that we might have eternal life in him if we only trust in him. That's that divine love. That's God's love. And dear friend, I want you to see that that's what the a kind of love that God calls us to. John 15, 13 uh, says it like this, Greater love, greater agape, has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends, just as Jesus laid down his life for his friends, for you, dear Christian. And Christians are expected to love, to have agape kind of love, especially for God, but even for one another. John 14, 15, if you love me, Jesus says, if you agape me, you will keep my commandments. You will keep my commandments. You will selflessly, selflessly and sacrificially Set your own desires aside, your own wants, your own desires, your own pursuits to follow my pursuits, my commands, my desires. That's the kind of love we're called to love God, to love Christ. Setting aside our own wants and desires for his wants and desires. And we're called to love one another that way as well. He calls us to Love one another. If you love me, you'll, you'll love one another. You'll have that kind of relationship with one another. You'll, you'll selflessly sacrifice for one another. I, I want you to see this, that if a, a, a marital relationship would build upon agape love, then that relationship would be unbreakable. 
if husband and wife were committed, both committed to sacrificial, selfless, sacrificial uh, acts for one another on the, on, you know, for the benefit of the other, then that marriage will never be broken. That marriage will be solid. It will be sound because each one is, is kind of just kind of trying to overspend the other and, and trying to live for the other person's benefit. There's no one person sitting back saying, oh, yeah, do it all for me. No, no, let me do for you. No, no, let me do for you. Oh, no, let me do for you. No, let me do for you. You see, when, when, both, when both people are, are trying to build one another up in love, sacrificing for one another, then there's solidarity. And that's what kind of love God calls us to in our marriages and in the church. In the church. Perfect love is selfless acts selfless sacrificial acts for the benefit of others for the benefit of others that's what we're called to in the church to be selfless and sacrificial putting our own wants and our desires on the back burner thinking others more significant than ourselves that's what paul is calling us to in first corinthians 13 selfless, sacrificial activity. And in Scripture, when we talk about agape love, it's all about action. It, it's, it's not a noun. It's, an, it's a verb, right? You've heard that phrase. Love is a verb. Love is a verb. It's, it's action. It, it's doing something. It's selflessly sacrificing yourself, your wants and your desires for the benefit of others. And so we see this kind of love. This is the kind of love that Paul is talking about here in this text, this selfless, sacrificial kind of love. So with this definition in mind then, we need to consider Paul's three hyperbolic examples that reveal the preeminence of love in the Christian life. Now, uh, don't let that word trip you up there. Hyperbolic examples. Paul is, in other words, Paul in this little paragraph, he is talking in hyperbole. Uh, hyperbole is exaggerating the, th the thing, right? Exaggerating things to, to make a point. And that's what Paul is doing here. We see this over and over, but you, you see it especially. Well, I'll bring it out as we, we go through this. He is giving these exaggerated examples to say even in this exaggerated case, even if this exaggerated case were true, but I had not loved, then I'd be worthless. All of this would be worthless. So he's giving these exaggerated examples to bring out the importance, the supremacy, the preeminence of love in the Christian life. And the first example that we see here is this, outward appearances without love are worthless. Outward appearances without love are worthless and we see this in verse 3 let's see look at verse 3 there if i speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love i am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal now you're, you're thinking there and i know you're thinking this now where is this appearances where where are these outward appearances how how are you getting that from speaking in tongues of men and angels well i, I want you to see that and I think I'm right on track here. Uh, you see, 
here in, in, in Corinth, the church at Corinth, as I was saying earlier, the church in Corinth, uh, they were exalting the, the gift of tongues, this gift of speaking languages. You remember we talked about this earlier when we talked about the spiritual gifts, the gifts of speaking in tongues is the gift to be able to speak a language. It's a real language. It's a real language. But to be able to speak this real language, a language that you have never, a person has never studied before. They, they've never studied the language. They never learned this language in the past. They're, the Spirit just comes on them and gives them the ability to speak. And so, uh, it, I don't know Spanish. So, uh, if God gave me this, the, the gift to speak in tongues and I just started speaking in, in Spanish, that would be the gift of tongues, right? Because I've never studied that language. I know a few words, but I don't know really how to speak the language. And so that's the gift of tongues. Now, he says here, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels. Now, remember, Paul is speaking in hyperbole. He is exaggerating this. Uh, some people would say, well, the gift of tongues is still active today. You've, you've heard that my, my argument against that well I think it's a temporary gift but uh, some would say that it's not temporary it's still active and it's not just speaking human tongues but it's also speaking a heavenly language so uh, even to the point saying well different people have their own little heavenly language their own prayer language that other people can't understand and, and they have to go to this verse to justify that, because this is the only verse in all of Scripture that talks about an angelic language. But the problem is with that argument is that Paul is speaking in hyperbole. He is exaggerating the case here. And he's doing it all throughout this verse. He's, he's not saying, if I speak in tongues of men and angels, like that's an actual thing, but he's exaggerating. If I speak in the tongues of men and even of angels, but have not love, you see? And he does the same thing in verse 2. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains. Now, no one has all, knows all mysteries, all the mysteries of God. No one knows all knowledge, the whole knowledge of God. No one on this celestial ball has all of that knowledge. Uh, no one has all faith to so to move mountains. Paul, if Paul, I mean, he was certainly a man of faith, was he not? And if Paul wanted to move mountains, it would have made his missionary journeys a whole lot easier. I need to go over there. Mountain, get out of my way. Give me a, fat, a flat lane to, to walk on. But Paul didn't do that. No one can do that. That's not possible. That's hyperbolic. And so Paul is using these exaggerated examples, and he's doing the same thing here in verse 1, if I speak in the tongues of, man, of men and even if I speak in the tongues of angels, even if that were the case, if I were to speak in a heavenly language but have not love, I am a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. And so uh, they were taking this, the Corinthians were taking this, this, the gift of tongues, and as I was saying, they were exalting them to a, a place of supremacy in the church. Right? Because why? Because that's the most visible, that's one of the most visible gifts a person can have. And, that, and that's what we're going to see in, verse four, in chapter 14. They were, they were taking these and people were just uh, interrupting church service, speaking out in tongues, and, and they were showing off. It was a showy gift. It's still a showy gift. 
It's still a showy gift. People use the gift of tongues often to show off. And, and that's what the, the Corinthians were doing. They were showing it off. They were talking in these gifts to, to, to show the world how spiritual they were. They were, they were using it as a visible symbol of their Christianity. In other words, they were not so worried about the, the gift of speaking in tongues. They weren't so worried about benefiting others. They were worried about showing off. They were worried about their appearances. They were worried about looking the look, right? They, they wanted people to, to see them as uber-spiritual, this super spiritual person. I'm super spiritual because I can speak in tongues. And, and so they were using it not as it was intended. They were using it as a visible sign, an outward appearance. And that's why I say here, Paul is really, he's focusing in. He, he's talking about tongues because that was the issue in Corinth. That's not our issue. Not at First Baptist, not at First Bastrop. That's not our issue our issue would be phys, uh, visible appearances, outward appearances. You, you see this a lot in the church, right? If you can talk the talk. If you can speak Bibelese, right? You, you can say things that make you sound Christian. Oh, well, then you must be uber-spiritual. If you like Bible verses or, or post Bible verses on Facebook, you must be uber-spiritual. If you, you, you wear the right clothes to church or if you come to the right activities in church, you, you must be uber-spiritual. If you teach a Sunday school class or you do this or you do that or whatever, you just, you just figure it out. Whatever it is that you call, that you want to label as evidence of super-Christianity, you just put that label out there. If I do that, then that means I'm just super-spiritual. I am the super-Christian, Right? And we see that. We see that all around. People, we love to put on masks, right? We like to go to the play and put on our little mask. And we come in here and we put on our, our fake smile and, and we put on our costume for everybody else. And we just think the world is lovely and great and just ain't I just super Christian here. And, and we, we, we put out that outward appearance. But often that outward appearance is, is hiding a dark heart heart that's not filled with love but a heart that's filled with pride and arrogance it's all about me what do people think about me what do people think about me what do people uh what do people see when they see me doing this that or the other but i want you to see and, and that's what paul is getting at here outward appearances are nothing they are a gong if I speak in the tongues of men and angels that have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Now, we have the drums back there. And, uh, well, he's not here today. No, I guess we don't have a drummer. Nope, he didn't make it today. But if we had the drummer back there, right, he, he, he plays those drums and there's cymbals on that drums. And, and if he's doing right, if he's hitting them beat, then, then it just... It, all goes together it all blends together and adds to the service and adds to uh, the experience right it's good and it's wonderful but if all of a sudden in the middle of a song the drummer just starts <coughs> I mean we didn't realize what, what what's he doing has he lost his mind has he gone crazy because that would just be a clanging gong right a clanging cymbal out of place 
And that's what Paul says. If I talk in the tongues of men and angels, but I have not love, it's like that. It's just noise. It's annoying noise. That's all it is. There's no basis for it. There's no benefit in it. It's just a noisy gong. At worst, outward appearances without love, is they're nothing. Or at best, they're nothing. They're just that. They're just, they're static. At worst, they're idolatry. As you look at this text, that whole phrase there, noisy gong or clanging cymbal, uh, that phrase there, uh, there's evidence that Paul might be referring to idol worship. Because in the idols, the idol temples that surrounded the Corinthian church there in Corinth, there were those idol temples and part of the, the worship ceremony in some of those idol temples was to sound the gong or to crash the cymbals. And so Paul might even be pointing to the, to the fact that such hypocrisy, outward appearances for, for just that, for their, 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 their idol worship, they're worse than idol worship because ultimately, and when you think about it, that is true. When we just put out outward appearances without love, that's idolatry. No, we're not worshiping Zeus or Aphrodite or any of those other gods. We're worshiping ourselves. We're exalting ourselves. I want to make myself look good. I want to put myself up on a pedestal. I want people to point at me and say, oh, look how, how wonderful he is. Look how great she is. Look how... how, how uh, how sanctified he is. It's idol worship. At best, it's clanging, it's just noise, it's static. At worst, it's idolatry, it's self-worship. So, outward appearances without love, without agape, without selfless sacrifice are worthless. They're worthless. Your best Christian faith, I mean, excuse me, your best Christian face, your best Christian mask without love is absolutely worthless. It's worth nothing. Second, the second example he gives here is the example of spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts without love are worthless. Spiritual gifts without love are worthless. He, he progresses on from just the, the gift of tongues there, that outward appearance uh, that, that tongues bring, speaking in tongues bring, to more, uh, more spiritual gifts. And if I have prophetic power and understand all mysteries, that is the, all the mysteries of God, right? There are certain things that God has hidden from us. He has revealed a lot of things to us in the gospel, but there are still mysteries that we don't understand. We may understand them, more of them in eternity future, but there's, there's still plenty of mysteries that we don't know, we don't understand. Paul says, even if I had all understanding of, of or excuse me, understand all mysteries, and have all knowledge, right? I know everything there is to know about God and creation. If I had all of that, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. Now, he, he works through a, couple of th a few things there. 
prophetic power. We've talked about those gifts, uh, prophecy, the, the gift of pro- proclamation, uh, the gift of, of wisdom and, and knowledge, the gift of, of, uh, of faith. All of these we've talked about. He's not including all of them. He's just kind of given some general uh, uh, spiritual gifts that kind of come out, pop out at us. But he, he, look at these. Think about what he's saying here. If I have prophetic power and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, you know, the greatest preaching and teaching without love is worthless. I mean, let's just combine those together. The greatest preaching and teaching out there without love is absolutely worthless. It's worthless. Now, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15, we're told, rather speaking the truth and love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. We're to speak truth in love. That, that can define preaching and teaching right there. We're, we're speaking truth in love. That's what we're called to, but there are a lot of people who either speak love or they speak truth, but they don't speak both of them together. Warren Wiersbe said that truth without love is brutality and love without truth is hypocrisy. Truth without love is brutality. There are a lot, many preachers who like to fleece the sheep, and that's all they want to do is just fleece the sheep. There's no love in their heart. Uh, I mean, part of preaching is confronting sin, but when it's done not out of love, then it's brutality. It's just, you're just trying to be hurtful. But then speaking love without truth, that's just hypocrisy. And, and we see plenty of that today. We see plenty of people wanting to speak love. Well, let's not address sin. Let's not take them to, to the truth of Scripture. Scripture says that's wrong, but let's not talk about that because that would be unloving. No, that's hypocrisy. That's hypocrisy. We speak truth in love. Now, we see an example of this in Scripture, especially truth without love. We see an, a wonderful example of this. Y'all remember the prophet Balaam? The prophet Balaam was a, a, a prophet of God, an Old Testament prophet of God. And you remember Balaam, he was a prophet of, of Jehovah, of, of Yahweh. And Balak, the king of the Meridians, heard about Balaam, and here comes Israel marching through the wilderness about to enter into uh, Midianite territory. And, and so Balak, the king of, of the Midianites, he calls on Balaam to come and cast a curse on the Israelites. Now Balaam comes, and he's a prophet of God. And he tells Balak that up front, I, I can only speak truth. I can only speak what God puts in my mouth to speak. That's all I can speak. I, I can speak truth. I'm not going to tell a lie. Right? I'm not going to speak against God's people. If God doesn't uh, allow me to, I can only speak truth. And so he comes at Balak's uh, urging, and he comes and he begins to speak. Now, Numbers chapter 24, verses 3 through 4, give this description of Balaam. This is one, in one of his prophecies. Balaam took up his discourse and said, The oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, the oracle of the man whose eye is opened. 
that is his eyes open to the things of God the oracle of him who hears the words of God who sees the visions of the almighty falling down with his eyes uncovered here is a man who he was a true prophet of God he spoke the truth of God's word and we see that every time three times he goes out to curse the people and instead of a curse comes out a blessing he speaks the truth but he did not speak it in love Balaam every time he, he blesses the people instead of cursing them but then what happens next a curious thing happens after that whole episode we see this people blessed by God three times blessed by God begin to slip into sin they begin to slip into sin the people of Israel or began to be enticed by Midianite women the women of Peor to to worship the God of Peor bringing sin into the, uh, the Israelite camp and with sin a plague from God but then in Numbers chapter 31 verse 16 we discover why this whole thing took place Numbers 31 16 speaks of the the downfall of Balaam behold these women these Midianite women on Balaam's advice caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord in the incident of Peor and so the plague came among the, the congregation of the Lord here's Balaam a prophet of God who spoke truth he spoke truth but it wasn't in love what he loved more than the truth what he loved more than God's people was money and Balak prayed him good money to come curse the people of God and so he spoke truth but then he said well you know Balak if you really want them to be cursed then here's what you do you send the women folk into the camp to entice them to commit adultery and God will curse them God will put a plague upon them so there is a wonderful example of the truth without love truth without love when you can be the greatest preacher teacher Bible teacher in the world speaking all truth but if it's what without love you're nothing you're absolutely nothing and your teaching is worthless it must be done in love in perfect love even the greatest faith without love is nothing. It's worthless. The greatest faith without love is absolutely worthless. If you could look out to the mountains and say, mountain, get from here, right? Get over, jump in the ocean. If you could move mountains with your words, but you didn't have perfect love, the love of God. If it's done for any other motive, your faith is worthless. Your faith is worthless. Any spiritual gift motivated by anything other than perfect love is worthless. It's worthless. So outward appearances without love are worthless. Spiritual gifts without love are worthless. Third, and this is where it gets a little confusing. But great sacrifices without love are worthless. Great sacrifices without love are 
worthless. Look at verse 3 there. Verse 3 says, If I give away all I have, if I give away all that I have, if I take all of my possessions, right? I just empty my bank account. I sell my house. I sell my cars. I sell my truck. I sell everything that I have. If I give up all of my possessions, I just go sell it all and give it all to the poor. If I do that, if I sacrifice all that I have and give it to the poor, but do it without love, Paul says, it's worthless. It's worthless. If I sacrifice everything I have. And he goes on to... To, to, to exaggerate the point even more. Not only do I give up all my possessions, but, but if I go on and deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Now, we need to talk about this a little bit here. Now, this verse here, and you, you, according to what translation you have, it, it may read a little different if you have the NIV or the New uh, Christian Standard Version. It may read a little bit different. Otherwise, you probably have a little notation there in your Bible that says something like this. Some manuscripts deliver up my body to death uh, that I may boast. Uh, so there, there's these different kind of nuances here to, to this particular text. And, and what the, the, here, here's, the, here's the thing, all right? The earliest transcripts. So the transcripts that we don't have the original uh, manuscript of Paul, the original letter that he wrote to Corinth. We don't have that anymore. It's long since gone. But there's copies. There's many, 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 many thousands of copies. And, and so the copies that we have that are closest to the source, closest to Paul's original, they do not include that little phrase, give up my body to be burned. Right? It, it says, if I give my body, period. Well, not period. It says, give my body, right? But it doesn't include that to be burned. And, and the fact of the matter is, Christians weren't uh, burned at the stake, if you will, until about a decade later. So Paul is writing this letter in 50, about 53, 55 A.D. And Nero's persecution started in 63 A.D. That's when the first Christians began to be burned. He, he was the first one to burn Christians for their faith. So most likely Paul didn't have in there that whole little statement about to be burned he does say if i give my body and he says if i give my body for boasting so there's still this idea if i give my body for persecution purposes so it, it, the the spirit of it is right so if i give my body for martyrdom if i give my body up for persecution uh, and all for the for the wrong purposes then it is for nothing so most likely what happened was as this began to be copied down, probably some scribe along the way started writing in the, the, the notes on the outside like you write in your Bible on the notes on the outside. Probably wrote in, you know, kind of a note. Yeah, if I give up a body to be burned because that's what happened in these days. And then along the way, some other recorder came along and, and he began to work that and he just kind of added that into the text. The spirit of the text is still there. It's just not, wasn't original. But the spirit of the text is still there. Paul is still talking about if I give up my body for persecution, if I give up my body, if I sacrifice my body, if I allow my body to be, to be killed, right, to be martyred, if I give it up for persecution purposes, 
but then he adds the little phrase there uh, for the purpose of boasting in order to be in order to boast about it i, I think the christian standard bible uh, probably gets a, a little closer to the idea here of the original text and if i give away all my possessions and if i give over my body in order to boast but do not have love i gain nothing in other words what paul is saying there if I make these sacrifices, not for selfless reasons, this is not a selfless sacrifice for the benefit of, of God or for anybody else, but I'm going to make these sacrifices. I'm giving away all my possessions. I'm sacrificing up my body to, to whatever kind of abuse, not for love, but for selfish reasons, to boast about that then it's worthless my sacrifices are absolutely worthless now do people sacrifice themselves for pride do people surrender up their possessions give away possessions do they 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 even sacrifice their own lives to for the ability to boast about it absolutely absolutely in fact in early christendom we we that you saw this in early Christianity when, when martyrdom became a common practice, when, when people, uh, you know, governments began to persecute Christians, it, it became like a badge of honor if, if you were to give yourself up for martyrdom. It wasn't out of love for Christ. It wasn't out of love for anyone else, but it was out of love for self. Kamikazes, suicide bombers, uh, they don't give up their lives for other people, the love of, for other people. It's not a selfless, sacrificial uh, gift for the benefit of others. No, it's all to benefit themselves. For the kamikaze, it was all about their honor, to pay their debt and, and to, to have that honor in their country. For the suicide bombers, it's about the 72 virgins and, and the kingdom that they're going to have in the next life. So it makes sense, right? Sacrificial giving. You can give sacrificially, but you can do it with a motive other than selfless service to others. You, you can be very boastful in your sacrifice. And if that's what motivates your sacrifice, then that sacrifice is, is worthless. It's absolutely worthless. The greatest sacrifices without love ultimately, dear Christian, profit you absolutely nothing. There is absolutely no eternal value in that. None. It must be motivated by selfless motives. It's selfless sacrifice for the benefit, the building up of others, whether that be for the benefit of Christ and his glory or for the benefit of, of other Christians. It's about selfless sacrifice for the benefit of others. Love is the preeminent characteristic of the spirit-filled life. Without perfect love, dear Christian, we are nothing. We are nothing. Now, 
even as I say that, the question comes to mind, how, how can we ever accomplish that? How can we ever accomplish that? Because if we're truly honest with ourselves, there's always a little selfishness kind of mixed in with our selfless sacrifices that we make for one another. In these bodies of flesh, every act that we do, every loving thing that we do is stained with sin. So how do we accomplish that? How do we love as God even loved us? Perfect love is only realized in Jesus Christ. We need to recognize that. Perfect love is only realized in Christ, in Jesus Christ. Dear friend, it starts with Jesus. It starts with Jesus. If you've never trusted in Jesus Christ, you don't know perfect love, and you can't know perfect love, and you'll never be able to, to love perfectly. It starts with Jesus. He was the one who, who demonstrated His perfect love for us by dying for us on Calvary's cross. The Father demonstrated His perfect love by sending the Son to die for us. It starts with Jesus. And until we trust in Jesus and give our lives up to Jesus, you can never know perfect love. So if you want to know perfect love today, dear friend, and you've never trusted in Jesus Christ, then I invite you today, trust in Jesus. Surrender your life to Jesus, and he will show you perfect love. It starts with Jesus Furthermore, it's empowered by Christ. It's empowered by Jesus. It's Jesus who empowers it in us. He, he sends the Spirit to move in us and recreate us to, to, give us to make us a new creation in Him. He empowers it so that it becomes one of the fruits of the Spirit. Love is a fruit of the Spirit. And we can begin to love perfectly, experience perfect love, to demonstrate perfect love only as the Spirit empowers us to do so. We do it through the Spirit. That's why it is so preeminent to the Spirit-filled life. It's the first evidence of a Spirit-filled life. You've got to trust in the power of the Holy Spirit over your life. Third, it's purified by Christ. Our love is purified by Christ. Yes, indeed. Every act that we do, everything that we do in this old body of flesh is stained by sin. At least a little bit. At least a little bit. Even the, the greatest of Christians, I would say, their most loving acts are most likely stained by sin. A little bit of sin is there. But Jesus Christ purifies that. He purifies that love so that when God looks at us and sees us, he sees the perfect love of Jesus Christ in us. It's only by Jesus. It's only through Jesus and by Jesus and, and from Jesus, for Jesus, that we experience perfect love. Trust Jesus. Trust Christ. And he'll teach you to love. Let our prayer today be this. Psalm 
139-24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me, lead me in the way everlasting. Lead me in perfect love. O Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your perfect love. And it's only through your perfect love that we experience, we know, and we can even demonstrate ourselves perfect love. Lord, we, we realize that our greatest effort at, at perfect love is, is ultimately stained. But Lord, we thank you and we praise you that our love is made complete in Jesus. And we just confess with our hearts and our minds today, Lord, it's all about Jesus. Without Jesus, we would be lost. Without Jesus, we would be nothing. Without Jesus, our lives would absolutely, positively be worthless. But Jesus gives us value. Jesus gives our love value. So we thank you for Jesus. Lord, let us surrender to Jesus. Certainly, search our hearts. Know our hearts. You know our hearts. And teach us, Lord. Teach us to love in perfect love. May all of our, our spiritual gifts be, be motivated by love. May all the activities that we do be motivated by your perfect love. Teach us your perfect love, Lord. And Lord, certainly there are those who are lost, who are listening today, who've never experienced your perfect love. Lord, introduce them to your perfect love today, Lord. Let them see Jesus. Let them trust in him. Let them experience your perfect, selfless, sacrificial love for them. This I pray in Christ's name.